Welcome to Mariners Church Weekend Message Podcast. For more information on Mariners and ways you can get connected, head to marinerschurch.org or click the link in our show notes. This has been a painful time for many people, maybe for many of you. Friends I've talked to, people I've talked to in our church have said this political season has been divisive for them with friends and with family. And the good news is that we're not the only Christians who have lived through a politically divisive season. And because of that, we can learn from Christians who have gone before us and how they responded to a time that was very challenging and very divisive. C.S. Lewis, one of the most renowned Christian authors in history, he wrote during a very politically divisive time. The issue was the war and Great Britain's involvement in the war. Some Christians were for the war. They believed, hey, we should fight, this is a holy war. And some Christians were against the war. They were pacifists who believed, no, Christians could never support a war. Now, when Lewis wrote, his biggest concern wasn't which side Christians would fall on, but whichever side they fell on would become the main theme of their life. His concern was that Christians would actually trade their faith in for their political viewpoint. And he addressed this in a chilling way in his very famous work, The Screwtape Letters. If you're unfamiliar with The Screwtape Letters, Screwtape writes to his nephew, Wormwood. So confusing names, but Screwtape is the uncle, Wormwood is the nephew, they're both demons, and their whole mission in life is to try and get Christians to abandon their faith. So Screwtape writes to Wormwood, giving him advice on how he, Wormwood, can get Christians to leave their faith. And in the Screwtape letters, Screwtape tells Wormwood, it doesn't matter which side a Christian chooses, whether for the war or against the war, you could actually get a Christian to abandon their faith, to shipwreck their faith through either side. Here's the words that C.S. Lewis wrote of screw tape advising Wormwood. Let the Christian begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Now notice this chilling spiral that Lewis writes can cause a Christian to abandon the faith, to actually abandon Jesus through politics. That politics starts as part of one's faith, which it should be, but then it spirals to where politics is the most important part of the Christian's faith. And then it spirals even further in which Jesus and church and the Bible themselves are merely tools to advance one's political viewpoint. This is how a Christian can leave Jesus for something less, for something else. So we can learn from former Christians who walked before us, but we can also learn from Jesus. Jesus stepped into a very politically divisive time even more divisive than our current cultural context. The people of God, Israel, the culture in which Jesus was born into, 
They had verses in the Bible telling them that they were the chosen ones. I think politics is often very important to us Americans because we believe the U.S. is exceptional and it's amazing, and it is. But God's people, Israel, they had even more reason to believe this. There were verses in the Bible telling them that they were God's chosen people. And so there was plenty of reasons to believe that Jesus would step into a culture and speak about the political climate in which he stepped. And it was very divisive. I want to introduce you to the different political parties that were around when Jesus walked this earth. Here we are. There's, there was at least six, and it was super confusing. There's Peter the Galilean and Henry the Herodian. So Peter the Galilean, this is what Peter believes. He believes that Galilee should only be filled with Galileans. We don't want anyone else. This is just us, God's people here in Galilee. He was very upset that Rome was occupying their territory. Very different from Henry the Herodian. These guys, even though they lived on the same street, each thought each other were absolute idiots. Henry the Herodian, he believes that the best chance for Israel's survival is actually to be under Herod. And Peter can't imagine that somebody would think that. And so these two guys, diametrically opposed, very different political viewpoints. But it wasn't only these two parties during Jesus' day. Come on, let's look at some more. Here's Saul the Pharisee and Josephus the Sadducee. Now these guys would, if there was television back then, would have watched completely different news channels. They would have read completely different Twitter feeds. They were so opposite of one another. Saul the Pharisee, he believed in the written law of God and the oral law that was passed down. But Josephus the Sadducee, he thought Paul was a liberal. I mean, no way should you add to the written law. There is no oral tradition. It's only the written. And Saul was from the Sadducees, which were the cultural elites. And so these two guys could not stand one another. And then it's not just those two and two. There's another group that was in constant conflict. This is Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Publican, completely different parties. So, so we not only have Herodians and Galileans, Sadducees and Pharisees, we also have Zealots and Publicans. Zealots, Simon, want to overthrow the Roman government. They believe in a theocracy. They don't want an earthly leader at all. And they can't imagine that there's a group of people called the publicans. Because Matthew and people like him, they actually work for the Roman government. They are perceived as traitors because they tax their own people. And so what would Matthew say to a Simon the Zealot? Matthew would have said something like, listen, we've always had people overseeing us. We were in Egyptian captivity, Babylonian captivity, Persian captivity. Now the Romans are here. We can be opportunistic, not only patriotic. Let's take advantage of the time we are in. So a very complicated political environment that Jesus steps into. So let, let's look at some scripture and see. Let's see the times that Jesus gets all of them together and confronts them and says, hey, here's the view of Rome that you should adopt. No verses. There's no verses in the Bible in which Jesus gets all six groups together and talks to them about their political viewpoint of Rome. There's also no verses in the gospel where Jesus signs up to be the spokesperson for any of these political parties. I mean, they would have loved for Jesus to affirm exactly their viewpoint, but Jesus doesn't sign up for any of these parties. 
In his very famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not address the politics of the day. There are no parables about the politics of the day. There's not one miracle that is focused on politics. There's one passage in the Gospels in which Jesus is attempted to be trapped by the Pharisees and the Herodians. They actually got together to try and trap Jesus with a political question. Should we pay taxes to Rome, Jesus? And Jesus responds, hey, bring me a coin. Whose picture is on that coin? And they bring him a coin and Caesar's picture is on the coin. And Jesus says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God. Pay your taxes to Rome, pay your taxes to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but don't give to Caesar what is God's. The image of God is on you. The image of God is on you. So give God your heart, give God your ultimate allegiance. Don't give your ultimate allegiance to Rome or to Caesar or to any one of these political groups. Give your ultimate allegiance to God. Give to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. So why didn't Jesus spend more time addressing the politics of his day as he's about to go to the cross to die for us, to offer himself as a sacrifice for all of our sins? Jesus has a conversation. It's an unexpected conversation with Pilate. These are some unexpected words because Pilate thinks Jesus is gonna wanna fight back for the kingdoms of this world but in John chapter 18, here's how the conversation goes. Then Pilate went into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus says, the reason I did not become the spokesperson for any of those political movements in his culture is because my kingdom, Jesus says, isn't from here. My kingdom is from another place. Jesus disappointed the political people in his culture because he didn't sign up to join their political movements. And if you wanted Jesus to join your political agenda, he disappointed you. But if you wanted Jesus for Jesus, he always quenched you. And the same is true today. Jesus quenches us when we want Jesus for Jesus. He came here to start a new kingdom, a kingdom with people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation, which is the reason he goes to the cross to die for us. His kingdom, the kingdom Jesus started, lasts forever. Here's what's fascinating about all of these political parties, about every single one of these political movements that were around during Jesus's day. Every single one of these political movements have fallen. They're all gone and Rome has fallen too. But what has not fallen and what will never fall is the kingdom Jesus started and the people of God, those last forever. Jesus was bigger than the political movements of his day. He transcended the political environment in which he stepped into. And the same is true today as well. Jesus transcends 
all of the political parties of his day and our day, he's bigger than all parties. And at the same time, because Jesus loves people, Jesus pursued people from every single one of these political parties. Jesus came here to this world to start his kingdom, populated with people from every single background. So Jesus went after the hearts of people from every single political party, and he still does that today. He pursues us right where we are. In fact, when you read the gospels, you see this fascinating story that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Publican were both two of Jesus' 12 disciples. These guys couldn't stand one another. And because of Jesus, they walked together as friends and brothers. They were common enemies, but Jesus has the power to pull people together who are very different from one another. Now, I know that some people would love a church or a small group in which everybody thinks the same politically. But this was not Jesus' approach to his own small group because Jesus wanted more for them. He wanted their unity to be built on something other than the politics of the day. He wanted their unity to be based on Jesus. See, the source of our unity is what always gets the spotlight. And if politics is the source of unity, then politics gets the spotlight. But if Jesus is the source of unity, Jesus gets the spotlight. These two who would have hated each other, they become together because of the power of Jesus to break down walls and unite people because Jesus is by far the most beautiful and the most important thing. So ask yourself, are you more comfortable with people who love Jesus but have a different political viewpoint than you? Or are you more comfortable with people who don't love Jesus, who aren't yet followers of Jesus, but have the same political viewpoints as you? Jesus longs for us to be united because of who he is and what he's done for us. So, so let me give you a little bit of, of my background so you know where I'm coming from. I grew up in a very politically engaged family. And, but the, the beautiful thing about my family, and I'm so thankful to my parents, and I've told them thank you while I was preparing this message. Politics wasn't the main thing, Jesus was. They were kind and compassionate and gracious. And then after becoming a Christian and then I become a youth pastor, every church I went to was filled with people who pretty much voted the same way. Until when I'm 27 years old, I, I moved to Miami to become the executive pastor at a church. And in Miami, the first time I'm confronted with people in the same Bible studies in the same church who have different political viewpoints. And it was so good for me. It was so good for my soul because I saw the source of unity being ultimately Jesus. It was good for me because I heard different perspectives. I heard different viewpoints and different backgrounds and different pains and different struggles. And I saw how Christians could be kind and gracious to one another and have fruitful and helpful conversations as opposed to being trapped in an echo chamber where we only hear the same viewpoint over and over again. I was in a Bible study with Marco Rubio who became, um, who was trying to become the nominee for the Republican Party. I was in a Bible study with him and I was also in a Bible study with people who voted Democrat. 
And so it was great for me to hear how some, their, their passion for religious liberty led them to vote one way, and others, their passion for ensuring that the poor are cared for a specific way, led them to vote another way. And what was so beautiful for me is the source of our unity was Jesus and not our voter registration card. And that's what Jesus found in Simon. That's what Jesus found in Matthew when he brought them together. Jesus transcended the political parties of his day and Jesus still transcends the political parties today. Now, you may be saying, well, but what about issues, Eric? What about important issues? And that's a great question. And early Christians, they cared about issues that God has always cared about and they cared about these issues with no political power or political voice at all. And we have to understand for us, the privilege we have in the US to vote and to have a political voice, when you study the scripture, it's a, it's a rarity. We are, we are such a rarity because the Christians we read about in the scripture, they changed the world under a monarchy with no opportunity to express a political viewpoint at all, but they changed the world. Larry Harado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, talks about how the early Christians in Rome were able to change the world, to turn it upside down without any political power at all. And he says it was because they were committed to five ways of living that just shocked the world. Five ways of living that drove them to behave in specific ways and to value certain things. And this wasn't because of politics, it was because they read the scripture and Jesus cared for these things, God cared for these things, so they cared for these things as well. So I'm gonna go, go to a board and show this to you. Now I've done this with groups of people on whiteboards, I've done this with buddies at a restaurant on a napkin. And again, this is from historian's viewpoint of how Christians changed the world in Rome when it was not, they didn't have the political power at all. They were committed to these five things and it's because they read these in the scripture. So they were committed to multi-ethnic worship. And the reason they were passionate about that, I can't spell ethnic, here we go, multi-ethnic worship. The reason they were passionate about multi-ethnic worship is because they read the scripture. The whole Bible points to God pursuing people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation for himself. Every person is created in the image of God, and God is pursuing all peoples for himself. Revelation 5.9, the last book in the Bible, heaven is populated with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so the early Christians, people were shocked because Jews and Gentiles and multiple ethnicities are worshiping together. They were passionate about this. They also, in a sex-crazed society, they were committed to the beauty of sex within the, the beauty of, of marriage. They were passionate about marriage. It was so common for, for men to have multiple women, for non-monogamy, and these believers, they believed that no, marriage is so important because marriage is a picture of the gospel according to Ephesians 5, verse 32, and so they, showed the world a picture of the gospel based on how they treated one another in marriage. But they also cared deeply for the poor. The early church, the early Christians, they shocked the broader Roman culture in how they provided for the needs of 
the impoverished. It's because they read Matthew 25 in which Jesus says, how you treat the least of these is how you treat me. And the early church ran to the vulnerable, the brokenhearted, the impoverished. They also, the early church, they cared greatly for the unborn. In the Roman culture, when infanticide was rampant and Roman Romans would discard children if they weren't male children because that was so valued in that society. The early Christians spoke against infanticide and they adopted children and they provided care for the women who wanted to have children. They cared for the unborn and it caught the attention of the society. And according to Larry Hirado, the fifth thing that these early Christians did that just blew everyone's mind is that they valued peacemaking. They were peacemakers because Jesus says, happy, blessed are the peacemakers. What a beautiful ethic. What a beautiful way to live. An ethic that values peace and the unborn and the poor and marriage and a multi-ethnic gathering of God's people. Now, this doesn't cleanly and neatly fit into any of the political parties in Jesus' day, and it doesn't cleanly fit into the political parties of any day because these were valued by Jesus, valued by God centuries before. Since human history began, God has cared for all of these issues. In fact, they're not even just issues. These are people that God cares for. Now, this is gonna be the part that uh, could, could rub some of you the wrong way. I've done this with, again, lots of people at restaurants and on whiteboards, uh, I'm going to put a D or an R, I have a blue pen and a red pen, next to some of these issues, to each of these issues. And this is how I always set it up, so you can hopefully lower a bit of your defenses right now. This is the stereotypical perception of the party's platform. So not saying that every Christian who votes Republican is this way, or every person who votes Democrat is this way. This is the stereotypical perception of the party's platform. And so the, 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 the party platform that speaks mainly about multi-ethnic in, in our culture would be the Democrats. Those who speak mainly about marriage would be Republicans. Those who speak a lot about caring for the poor and the impoverished, D, who care for the unborn, R, and which party cares most about peacemaking? We can't really say right now that uh, any political party is the experts on peacemaking, but here's the point. Jesus cares for all of these issues, and God's people, all of us, we should care for these, not because our voter registration card tells us to care for these, but we should care for all of these because Jesus cares for all of these. And if we only care for the ones that align to how we vote, then we are only caring for them because our political party tells us to care for them. But if we care for them because Jesus cares for them, then we're gonna care for all of these because Jesus cares for all of these. I mean, we could put a, 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 a big C over, over all of it. Christ cares for all, the church cared for all. We should care for all of these issues because Jesus cares for all of these people. He cares. Scott Sauls has said this, and I think it's a wise and very helpful statement. 
He has said that we can disagree on the best policies to care for these different people and these issues. And, and Christians can't, there's room for us to disagree on policies related to all of these. And as Christians, we can be even single issue voters, but we cannot be single issue Christians. You can be a single issue voter. There's a conviction that you have that can, can cause you with a clear conscience to vote a certain way. But before Jesus, you shouldn't be a single issue Christian. You should care for all of these because Jesus cares for all of these. Some of you in this last election cycle, you were a single issue voter on the issue of abortion. And with a clean conscience, you voted a certain way because of that because you read Psalm 139 and you understand that God places his image on people while they're in the womb, or maybe you had a, a, a testimony or a difficult past with the issue of abortion, your heart's been pricked and you care deeply, this was the single issue in which you voted on, or maybe your single issue was immigration. Maybe you read in the scripture about God caring for the immigrant and the refugee and the vulnerable, or maybe, you have a family member or a friend who's been on a long, difficult path towards citizenship, and this was the single issue that you voted on with a clear conscience. You can be a single issue voter, but listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we shouldn't be single issue Christians because God cares for all of these things. Which side is Jesus on? People will often ask that question. I'm sure the six political parties that existed when Jesus stepped into this world, asked which side is Jesus on. The political parties surrounding C.S. Lewis's writing asked which side is Jesus on. There was a man in the scripture who asked one day, which side is Jesus on? This is in Joshua chapter five, and his name is Joshua, and he's about to go overtake the land of Jericho, and he's ready to go into battle, and a man appears in Joshua chapter five, He's the commander of the Lord's army. Most theologians believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning this is Jesus stepping into the story before Jesus is born into our culture because Jesus has always existed. So the commander of the Lord's army is Jesus. And Joshua asked him, whose side are you on? Are you on my side? Whose side are you on? The commander of the Lord's army, Jesus says, neither, neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, Jesus doesn't choose a side. Jesus invites us to choose his side. Jesus doesn't join our team. Jesus recruits us to join his team. And whose side is Jesus on? He's on the side of every single one of those issues, every single one of those people that we put on the board. In other words, Jesus transcends the politics of every single culture because Jesus is before all and above all. He's bigger than all. So what do we do in a divisive time like this? How do we respond to the commander, Jesus? How do we respond to him? There's, there's three thoughts I want to leave you with in the next couple of moments. Number one, remember your first allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. That's your first allegiance. Now, now, few people would admit that in this season that politics has become their God. Few people would admit that Satan has lured them away as in the screw tape letters. Most people would say, no, 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 politics isn't my God. Politics hasn't become my religion. Politics hasn't become my most important thing. 
But I want you to evaluate your heart just for a moment. Where have you placed your hope these last six months? Has your hope been crushed because it's been misplaced? Who has discipled you these last six months? Has the scripture, has Jesus discipled you through his word or has the news anchor that you listen to every night discipled you? Who have you spoken about the last six months? Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples. Peter, a Galilean, and John, in the book of Acts, they were told to stop speaking about something because they were so passionate about this thing that they were speaking about. And it wasn't the political party of the day, even though it was so divisive in that time. What they couldn't stop speaking about was Jesus. They said, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, and they were referring to Jesus. Is Jesus what you can't stop speaking about? Is he your first allegiance? As a pastor, as your pastor, my heart breaks whenever I see people run to something other than Jesus, because whenever we run to something other than Jesus, that thing will always consume us and then will always destroy us. So when the alcoholic runs to the bottle for comfort, the bottle ends up destroying the alcoholic. My heart breaks when the alcoholic runs to the thing for comfort, but the thing ends up destroying him. And my heart breaks for some of you who have run to politics for your comfort and your soulless, and it's only destroyed you with anger. For people in this last season who have run down rabbit holes of information, and that information has brought you a little bit of excitement or a little bit of comfort, but it's destroyed your soul. It's made you angry and caused you to lose your love for Jesus. And there's so many that have raced down rabbit holes of misinformation. And I wanna say to you, if you've listened to people who had these predictions of things that would happen and they haven't come true, why are you still listening to people who have deceived you and brought you down a rabbit hole and caused you to place your hope in something that won't quench you? Run to Jesus. He never disappoints. He always quenches. Every prophecy about Jesus has come true. Jesus is true. You can run to him. He will receive you. And if in this season you have misplaced your allegiance, you can come back to Jesus today. He is ready to receive you. So number one, remember as Christians, our first allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Number two, we can be convinced and kind at the same time. And I want to show you a passage in Romans chapter 14 that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people about a very divisive issue. This was not a small issue. The issue was, could we eat meat? Not, not like, could we not be a vegetarian? The issue was, could we eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? And some believed, yeah, idols aren't even true. Everything that God created is pure. We can eat the meat. Others believe there's no way, there's no way we should eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so some were saying, and we've heard this said in a political environment, how can you call yourself a Christian and eat meat? Or others would say, how can you call yourself a Christian and not eat meat? And so the apostle Paul, it was so serious that he had to address it. And here's what he wrote in Romans 14. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does because God has accepted him. 
Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. So Paul is saying, before you decide to eat or not eat, you, you have to be convinced in your own mind what's, what's right for you. You have to be convinced in your own mind because you're gonna make a decision to eat or not eat. And so when you vote, when you eat, you should be convinced in your mind. Don't try to be convinced in everybody else's mind. Be convinced in your mind and at the same time, be kind. You know, it's easy to be convinced and not be kind. It's also easy to be kind and not convinced. But to be both convinced and kind, that takes maturity. Can we up as Christians our kindness game in a time in which people are really divided? You know, Jesus said by this, all people will know you're my disciples by how you vote. No, Jesus said by this, all people will know that you're my disciples by that you love one another. Can we be convinced and kind and compassionate to one another? Here's number three. Here's how I wanna encourage us to respond. We can engage more than politically. We should engage politically. You are not hearing me say to not engage politically. We should engage politically, but we can engage more than politically. As Christians, we are in the world for the world, which means that we should care for all of the issues I put on the board. We should care for all of those in all realms of society, including politics, but not only politics. We have many politicians in our church and I'm so thankful for them. If you are one, I'm thankful for you. You have a challenging job, a difficult job, and we pray for you. We must pray for you. But for all of us, we can engage more than politically. We, we must understand that the early Christians we study, they didn't live in a democracy where they had a vote. And I'm grateful that we do have a vote. They lived under a monarchy where they had no vote and no voice yet they cared for every single one of these issues. In fact, when the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul wrote to early Christians, challenging them to pray for and honor their leaders, they were actually asking Christians to pray for and honor people who would kill them. And yet Christians were able to change the world because they engaged in all of these issues more than politically, and we can too. I'm so grateful that in the last 15 years, we have seen and are seeing abortion rates in the United States decline. And many people who have studied this have said, it's because of Christians who are engaging more than politically. It's great to engage politically, but we're engaging in other ways too. We have more Christ-centered crisis pregnancy centers. We have Christians who are finding ways to care well for the mothers. We have believers who are adopting and fostering, and we are finding ways to engage in these important issues apart from politics, which by the way, is the only way the early Christians could engage. And so let's not be deceived into thinking that the only way we can care for the things that Jesus cares about is through political power. We should and must care for all that Jesus cares about in all the realms of society. So we engage more than politically. And as we do, we remember that this is not our forever home. 
that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Our citizenship is not ultimately here. Listen, I am so thankful for our country. I am so thankful for America. I'm so thankful for the religious liberty that we enjoy. I stand for our religious liberty, but Jesus is going to build his church with or without religious liberty. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome her, he offered no disclaimers. His church is going to thrive. I am thankful for religious liberty, but when you look at the global landscape, you see in places like India and China, where there isn't religious liberty, that the church of Jesus is moving forward. I love religious liberty, but it's not as if God is wringing his hands, worrying that his church is not going to thrive and win and push the gates of darkness back. I love our religious liberty, but Jesus is going to build his church with it or without it, his plans will not be thwarted. I love our country. I love the opportunities that are provided for in our country. When I lived in Miami, more than half of Miami when I lived there was filled with people who were born outside of Miami, who immigrated into Miami, and they were blown away by the opportunities that we have in America. And I'm so thankful for the opportunities that we have in America, but I must remember and you must remember that this is not our ultimate home, that this isn't our ultimate citizenship. When we stand before Jesus one day, we are not going to sing songs about America. We are going to sing songs to him, the one who has rescued us and purchased us and made us his, his sons and his daughter. When we stand before Jesus one day, we are not going to declare the greatness of America we are going to declare the greatness of a God who loved us and rescued us. When we stand before Jesus, we are not going to debate politics. We are going to be in his presence and be filled with everlasting joy because Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world to reconcile people to himself from every tribe, tongue and nation. And that's where we are going to spend eternity. His kingdom is the kingdom we ultimately belong to. He is the king who should have our hearts, who must have our hearts. Our allegiance should be for him and for his kingdom. That is who should occupy the affections of our mind, the attentions of our soul is Jesus. Jesus is the one who quenches. Jesus is the one who satisfies. And when all the earthly kingdoms, they disappear, they all come and go. Jesus and his kingdom remains forever. Jesus and his kingdom must have the allegiance of our hearts and our souls. Let's remind ourselves as we sing that Jesus is the one who is worthy of all of our affection because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness that was freely given to us on the cross of Jesus when he offered himself by his love and by his grace for us. I want Jesus to have your heart because nothing else other than Jesus will satisfy your heart. Everything else will disappoint you. Everything else will let you down. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who is worthy. Church, let's have Jesus as the center of our heart and the center of our affection. Mariners Church, before I pray a prayer of blessing over you, I want you to know about an event we have this Wednesday night at our Irvine campus. A Gentle Answer is a book written by Scott Sauls, and it really is a deeper dive into the whole point to be kind and convinced at the same time. 
how to have conversations with people with different political viewpoints, different viewpoints of what's going on in the culture, and as Christians, to, to give a gentle answer. And so perhaps your family, your friends have been just beaten up during this divisive time. This event is for you. More information on the website, but I wanna invite you to come. Will you open your hands and I will pray a prayer of blessing over you as we go. Father, these are your sons and daughters. You've brought them into your kingdom. I ask you to bless them this new week. Fill them with your joy and your peace. Remind them of your great love for them. Bless them this new week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Mariner's Weekend Message Podcast. To support the ministry of Mariner's Church, you can head to the website by clicking the link in our show notes or text MYMARINERS to 77977. If you'd like more biblical encouragement from Mariner's Church throughout the week, we also have the Gospel Everyday Podcast. Every episode is a seven to 10 minute reflection from our 2021 annual read, A Mariner's Tradition and it's based in the book of Proverbs. We're reading Timothy and Kathy Keller's devotional, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. And why are we doing this? Well, God wants us to benefit from his wisdom and avoid foolish thinking and living. Instead of binging on social media or your favorite streaming service, imagine feeding your heart, mind, and soul with the kind of practical wisdom that God will use to change your life. Hey, let's get wise together. Join us and head over right now and download the Gospel Everyday Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Have a great week and may you live by God's grace every day.